Welcome to McGonigal's Chronicles, Making Montana Connections. I'm KRTV KXLH anchor Tim McGonigal. The weather is usually a lot warmer in Liberia than it is in Montana. But Wilmot Collins would probably gladly take the frigid temperatures of Big Sky Country over the bullets and bloodshed that prompted him to leave his homeland during that country's civil war. The current Helena mayor is now into his second term of leading Montana's capital city. He made history in 2017, becoming the first black mayor of a Montana city. I spoke to him recently about how he got from Liberia to Helena, how his native land went from an idyllic country on the west coast of Africa to a war-torn battlefield that left him and his family fighting for their lives. Here's part one of my conversation with Wilmot Collins. Well, we are very pleased today to have the mayor of Helena, Wilmot Collins, joining us. And uh, Wilmot, thanks for thanks for taking time here today. And uh, you know, your story is so amazing. Uh, you grew up in Liberia before coming to Montana. Uh, for talk, talk about Liberia and what that country was like. You were born, I believe, in the '60s, and uh, yes. so, so so talk about growing up there and what uh, what life was like in Liberia. You know, Liberia is um, a very small country. In land, we're looking at one third of hell, um, of Montana. Mm -hmm. But Liberia was established by slaves that were free from the U.S. that went back to Africa. They landed on the west coast of Africa and established Liberia. Growing up in Liberia, I uh, I grew up on the Firestone Plantation. And that is, you know, where you where uh, you receive the Firestone tires. You you've seen Firestone tires around. You've seen B.F. Goodrich. You've seen Bridgestone. All the material you have to make that tire comes from Liberia. We have the world's largest rubber plantation. And my parents worked for that company. My mom was superintendent of schools, and my dad was a silver engineer for the Firestone Company. So we grew up there and life was no different from here growing up on Firestone because uh, most of my teachers were from here in the US and uh, friends were Caucasians because their parents worked for the company also. And they were, we played baseball, we played tennis, we played softball, kickball, all of those things. And, so um, I um, went to school from, I went to the Firestone School from grade school till sixth grade. Okay. And then when I got promoted to the seventh grade, I went to a Catholic boarding school. And I stayed there until I graduated from, from the 12th grade. And when I was in the 12th grade is when Liberia had the civil uprising that killed the president, William Talbert. Okay. And that's when the military took over the country. Things were not as great, but they were, they were not as bad. When I graduated from high school at the Catholic boarding school called Carroll High School, mm -hmm. I went to the Ricks Institute Junior College. It's a Baptist. The, 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 the different uh, churches had the best schools. So that's where my parents sent us. I went high school to a Catholic boarding school. Then I went to Ricks Institute Junior College, which was also a boarding Baptist school. I spent two years there. I graduated with my associate. Then I uh, 
matriculated to the University of Liberia, where I studied political science and sociology. And during that time at my at the University of Liberia, things started to deteriorate fast. And being a political science student, we were in the midst of all the political stuff in Liberia. And um, I still remember the day the, uh, the the military leader decided to send the army to our campus to remove us from campus because we were we were protesting against the military government. Things deteriorated fast, and so um, Charles Taylor, who was once a member of the military government, fled the country and uh, decided to um, create his own warring faction, the National Patriotic Front of Liberia, and decided to come back into into the country and remove the military government, and that's when the war broke out and things got really terrible. And I know we were fleeing from place to place because my wife at the time, when the war broke out full force, she was a medical student. And um, we used to live on the medical dormitory. And then in the night, we were allowed to go to the Catholic hospital and stay there because uh, it was very unsafe at night. So we had to stay awake at night and sleep during the day. Things, and then the soldiers raided the hospital, so we had to leave. And we fled the hospital and went to my sister's home, not far. And the war ended up in that area and we were on the floor for three days, three nights because stray bullets kept flying through the house and uh, we couldn't get up. After the third day, uh, I remember that morning we heard, if you're in here, get out. If you're in here, get out. And we decided to get up because we didn't know whether it was the rebel or the army, but we heard people say, get out, get out. So when we got out, the place was littered with bodies. They had been fighting in our area for three days and three nights, and we we had to jump over bodies. Wow. When we fled that area, we went to my family home where my mother was, Mm -hmm. and the war started to creep up on us there. So we decided to leave the area, and the safest area in at that time was the area around the American embassy because they had the Marines taking care of that area. So we decided we're going to walk over there. And it was about um, maybe eight, nine miles. We walked there, my mom, all of us. And we got there. There was no place to live. We were out in the open. And a lady recognized my mom and said, I have a room, but there's nothing in it. But at least you'll be inside instead of outside. So we all took that one room. And that's where we stayed until West African countries realized that uh, Liberia, that was once the beacon of hope, was in total chaos. And they decided to get together and form an organization and sending peacekeepers. Mm-hmm. When the peacekeepers arrived, they asked people who wanted to leave to go on to other countries to get on board the ship. The cargo ship that brought the peacekeepers, Liberians were allowed to get on board those sh- the ship. 
And I know the first ship, we, um, we missed it. And the second ship arrived on a Thursday. So that Friday, we heard about it. And that night, we prayed and prayed about it. We decided, yes, it was time to leave. And um, that Friday morning, we got up. And I told um, my mom, everybody got ready. And my, mom's, my mom said, no, I'm not leaving. I said, what do you mean you're not leaving? She said, I prayed some more and the Lord isn't leading me. I said, well, the Lord brought a ship. He must be leading you because he brought the ship here for us to get on. Okay. But I could not convince my mom. So we decided we were leaving anyway. Okay. And um, as we were walking out the door, my mom handed my fiance, who, who is my wife now, she, she handed us $5 and said, go, God be with you. Wow. And so we walked out the door and left her there. And we walked to the port, the free port of Monrovia, to get on board the ship. We got online Friday. We stayed online all Friday because we got to the port around 10 o'clock that morning. Okay. And we stayed online Friday. We stayed online Saturday. We stayed online Sunday. And then finally, Sunday evening at 9.47 p.m., we were chosen to get on board the ship. And at 10 o'clock, the gates were closed. Wow. When we got on board the ship, it was estimated 10,000 Liberians were on board that ship. And there was only standing room, so we had to stand. And so my wife and I were standing back to back because we needed each other to lean on. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'd whisper, I said, so where are we going? She said, I thought you knew. I said, no, I don't know where the ship is going. So we got on board the ship, not re even knowing where it was going. Yeah. So the next morning, we started asking others, where is the ship going? They said, oh, the ship is going to Ghana. And then they were going to drop people off and go to Nigeria. And we decided we're getting down in Ghana. And we got down in Ghana. After three days of being on the ship, I realized my mom was right because she was not too well at the time and people lost their loved ones on the ship and they had to throw them overboard. They had to dump them overboard because we didn't know how long the ship was going to be. People couldn't keep their loved ones that had passed. And it hit me. I said, man, if my mom had come on this ship and anything had happened, I don't know if I would have been strong enough to do what these people are doing. Yeah. But when we landed in Ghana, because in Liberia, I used to teach. I used to teach at an international school. Mm -hmm. And that international school had branches in almost every African country, European, Asia, and in the U.S., it's called the SOS Children's Village. And I landed. And when we landed, I asked my wife, I said, hey, give me that $5. I need to find the SOS Children's Village so they can help us. My wife handed me the $5. I was able to get outside of the parameters of the port in Ghana. Okay. And I stopped a cab. I told him I was looking for the SOS Children's Village. And he said, oh, I know where he's at. 
I said, I don't have much money. I have only $5. He said, that would be enough. But I laid a phone out. It would have cost me only 50 cents to go to the SOS village. And when I got there, I met the director. I introduced myself. And for the first time, I could not prove who I was. Because he asked me for an ID. And in Liberia, when we were fleeing, we did not want to be linked to anything. So everybody got rid of the IDs. Okay. And he said, well, I can't just help everybody that comes saying they're from the village. He said, but some children came on the first ship. If they can identify you, I'll help you. I said, please send for them. I used to teach them. Mm -hmm. And he sent for the boys. And when they came, they saw me and they broke down crying. Oh, Mr. Collins, oh, Mr. Collins. And they just, just started crying. And I didn't understand why until I went into the restroom to use the restroom for the first time in seven days. Oh, my. When I got into the restroom, I looked in the mirror for the first time in months. I did not recognize myself. When I got on the scale, there was a scale in the bathroom. I was 97 pounds. Wow. When those kids knew me, they knew me as Mr. Collins, 172 pounds. Man. That day I was 97. Gosh. My wife was 80, 85 or 87 around there. We were literally dying of starvation. Yeah. So finally we arrived and they, they accepted us on the village and um, they put me back into the school. I started teaching again. My wife was a medical student at the time, so they put her in the clinic. She started helping out. And after three, four months, my wife says, um, let's go to America. Okay. I said, how do you suppose we do that? <laughs> she said, in fact, let's go to Montana. I said, whoa, whoa, slow down, make up your mind. We ought to go to America, we'll go to Montana, but we can't be running. And she said, Montana is in America. That was my first introduction to Montana. Okay. And so um, I said, how do we do that? She said, well, I still have family in Montana. And, you know, my wife was an exchange student here, and she went to Helena High. She lived with Bruce and Joyce Knoxheim. Okay. And um, we contacted them. She contacted them, and they were overjoyed to help us come to America. But they didn't know the process, and we didn't know the process. But they didn't relent. They contacted Carroll College. Carroll College awarded my wife a full scholarship for nursing because okay. they didn't have a medical school. And so well, the next thing, the next closest thing was the uh, nursing school. So my wife said, yeah, I'll take it. So we went to the embassy and we were denied visas to come to America. No reasons why we were just denied. So we called the Knoxheims up and told them that um, we thanked them, but uh, we were denied. And we thought that was the end. Mm -hmm. But they didn't relent. They contacted Conrad Burns. They contacted Max Barkas. They contacted Pat Williams. All those people wrote numerous letters inquiring why we were denied when we had all the necessary documents. So we were invited back to the embassy for a second interview. 
when we got there, they just told us, only one of you can go. So I said, well, my wife has the scholarship, let her go. And so they granted my wife a visa to come to America. And she was to leave August 19th, mm -hmm. 1991. So we left and went back to the village waiting for August because by this, it was around July, late July that we, she got the visa. Mm -hmm. So um, we went back to the village and we're trying to prepare for her to leave. We're talking about things. And then she started getting sick. <laughs> so we I took her to the hospital. They ran tests and everything. And finally, the doctor comes back and said, congratulations, Mr. Collins. You will soon be a proud father. I said, oh, no, no, no. My wife is going to school. He said, well, she's going pregnant. <laughs> and I'm like, oh. So we had to regroup. That's when I said, hey, I, I can understand you going, but now you're going with our child. And I don't know when I will ever see you guys again. She convinced me that was the best thing to do. Okay. So they left. She entered Carol, pregnant. She had the baby, and uh, she and her come up, some of her classmates arranged a schedule where they will help babysit and all of that. In the meantime, I'm in uh, uh, Ghana trying to come to Liberia. I mean, come to America. Right. And I realized that the only way we could come was through the United Nations. And we had to register as refugees because we were out of our country. Okay. So I went to the local United Nations headquarters and registered as a refugee. And that's how my process started. We had to go through a series of interviews. We had to go with Homeland Security, with FBI, with State Department, with USCIS immigration. Mm -hmm. And after passing all those various steps, then we had to go through the medical. And after passing the medical, then we had to go through what, what they call the cultural orientation classes. And I remember when I went into that, every time I told the people I wanted to go to Montana, they all would be laughing, but I didn't understand why they were laughing. Sure. And finally, we went through that process and got through with it. And then they told us we were leaving. And by this time, it's 1994. Okay. And my wife had left 1991. Mm -hmm. And so I called my, my sister up. I said, hey, um, can you visit my family in Montana? And she said, yeah, sure. So she flew into Montana in November. Mm-hmm. And November of 93. Okay. And uh, after she spent four days here, she went back to New Jersey, where she was from. And I called her. I said, so how was Montana? Because I knew she would give me an accurate picture. She said, you don't want to go to Montana. <laughs> I said, why? She said, I was there for four days. It snowed for four days. And I didn't see any black people for four days. Oh, my. <laughs> I said, oh, Okay, but you know, my family is there. My family is black. She said, that's the only black people I saw. Wow. 
So I said, okay. Then I called my wife up. I said, hey, how's Montana? She said, oh, it's awesome. I said, what's the weather like today? And it was January 1994 when I asked her. She said, oh, it's pretty warm today. It's 29 degrees. And I said, you must not understand what the temperature is because it cannot be pretty warm at 29 degrees. <laughs> and she said, it is. I said, but water freezes at 32. How can it be warm? So we went back and forth arguing. Oh, and I said, let me speak to Mrs. Noxine. So Mrs. Noxine came on, came on the phone. I said, hey, Joyce, how's the weather? She said, oh, it's pretty warm today. It's 29. <laughs> I said, humor me and tell me what is it when it's cold? She said, oh, sometimes below, uh, 30 below. <laughs> and I said, below what? She said, oh, <laughs> below zero. I said, what do you mean? It can't be colder than ice. They, they laughed because I couldn't fancy what was going on. Well, yeah. And uh, But anyway, my wife came back and said, yeah, you will love it. Don't worry about it. And the day came for me to come to America. We left like Africa and flew through Paris and then to JFK airport. And I landed in JFK. They took us to a hotel for the night. And then the next morning, we're going to be going to Salt Lake and then to Montana. And while I was in the airport at the hotel, there was a phone booth in the hotel. Mm -hmm. I wanted to call my family in Montana and say, hey, I'm in America, but I had only 25 cents. Wow. I uh, went to the phone booth and the phone booth had 35 cents per call, three minutes call. Oh. So as I was walking away from the phone booth, I saw this gentleman and I said, um, excuse me, uh, would you loan me a dime? And he said, how will I get my money back? I said, oh, okay, would you give me a dime? He said, yeah, sure. He handed me a dime. Okay. And I went to the phone booth and called my wife. I said, I'm in America. I'm coming to Montana tomorrow. <laughs> and she was excited. I was excited. We talked for three minutes. And my sister, in the meantime, brought me a bag of clothes and said, hey, everything you see in this bag, you put on before going to Montana. Mm -hmm. So the next morning, I put on two sets of long johns. I put on a turtleneck. I put on a winter uh, a vest, the pair of jeans. You know, I was like the Michelin man. <laughs> I was that thick, you know. And um, when I got to the airport, she didn't tell me, you know, you won't be outside. And so I'm in the airport, but I was still hoping that when we land in Montana, all these layers would help. <laughs> so we flew. When we got into Salt Lake City, I was, I was the only passengers sweating on the plane wow so when we got into salt lake city i had to go and undress and take off a few layers and why we had a layover mm -hmm. and then when we got on the plane from salt lake to helena i remember i had a window seat and i sat next to the window and then this gentleman came and sat next to me and um he said, hello. I said, hi. And he said, you must be Wilmot. And I almost lost it. I said, whoa, 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 who are you? Yeah. He said, oh, um, my name is Craig Baker. As a matter of fact, my parents told me you were coming to Helena. I didn't know you were on the same flight with me, but um, my parents, uh, they work with Carol. They were instrumental in awarding the scholarship to your 
to your wife. Oh, okay. His dad was Jeff Baker, who was the vice president of Carol, and his oh, wife, okay. Shirley Baker, and his mom, Shirley Baker, who was international students director. And uh, I said, but how did you know I was Wilma? He said, look around the plane. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked around the plane. I said, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so kind of we talked. Way. Yeah. And then landing, I heard the pilot get, he got on the intercom and said, welcome to Helena. Welcome to Helena Regional Airport. It's sunny and warm at 32 degrees. And I was freaking out because I knew it was cold. Right. The average temperature in Liberia is 85. And this man is saying it's sunny and warm at 32. <laughs> but as we were descending, I noticed people were wearing shorts. <laughs> wow. And as I got off the plane and got into the terminal, I saw my family. And I just, uh, my wife put our daughter down and said, there's daddy, go to daddy. And she yeah. started walking to me and I stopped. And then she started running and I just ran and picked it up and fell on my knees on the floor and just started screaming. Wow. It was pretty emotional. Yeah. This is the first time you've seen your, your daughter, right? And yes. Wow. Yes. Yeah. So. So that's in a nutshell, that's how I came to Montana. Yeah. And um, I remember every morning I would, go, I would come to school with Bruce Knoxheim. He was the assistant principal by Helena High right. at that time. And I would walk around town. And this time I saw the Capitol building this day when I was walking. And I ran up the front stairs. And to my right, as I entered, was the office of Secretary of State. To my left was the office of the governor. And I said I was going to meet the governor. And I beeline to the governor. And I got stopped. The lady said, do you have an appointment? I said, no, ma'am. She said, would you like to make one? I said, please. <laughs> and so as I'm writing my name down, this gentleman comes behind me and said, may I help you? I said, no, sir. I'm here to meet the governor. He said, well, I'm the governor, Mark Roscoe. What can I do for you? I said, oh, I'm just from Africa. Two weeks ago, I thought I should come and meet you. He said, what part of Africa? I said, Liberia. He said, oh, where the slaves went from America? I said, yes. Mm -hmm. He said, come on in. <laughs> and I walked in his office. He said, so what do you do? I pull up my paper, copy of my resume, and hand it to him. He said, oh, you were a teacher. <laughs> I said, yes. And he presses in. I come. He said, Pat, would you come in? It was Pat Happy. I think she was low patch at the time. Okay. Pat Lopatch came in, and he handed my resume to her and said, oh, what can we do for Mr. Collins? She looked at it. She said, oh, Inner Mountain Children's Home is looking for counselors. Wow. Why don't you apply and use us as your references? I said, can I do that? He said, yeah. He handed me his card. She handed me her card. I applied. I got interviewed the following week and started working two weeks later. Wow. That's that was my first work job I had in Montana in America. You've been listening to a conversation with Wilmot Collins, the mayor of Helena, who fled Liberia during that country's civil war and relocated to Montana, where he and his family started a new life. And next time on McGonagall's Chronicles, Making Montana Connections, we continue our conversation with Wilmot Collins. He talks about adjusting to life in the Treasure State, his entry into the political arena, service in the National Guard and U.S. Army Reserve, U.S. Naval Reserve, and more. 
I invite you to subscribe to McGonagall's Chronicles wherever you get your podcasts and rate the podcast and leave a review. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook and Twitter. Until next time, for McGonagall's Chronicles, Making Montana Connections, I'm Tim McGonagall.